Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today I'm joined by CM Chaudhary. CM Chaudhary is a product manager turned founder with a background at Facebook and Swedish startups ACAS and funded by me. He started Pliance together with two other co-founders in 2018 to build anti-money laundering automation. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. So you, you, you mentioned that you're a person who started in the pro- well, a product and started founder. I actually feel like that's a pretty natural transition. Uh, was that something you always intended or something that just happened organically over time? Um, I think I've always thought about starting something. And I think I got a lot of interest in working close to product and with product uh, while I was at Facebook. And, but I didn't, never knew sort of what, what I would do. And, and, and sort of being close to product and so sort of really getting into it, that sort of started sparking like more and more ideas. And then finally in 2018 or late 2017, I started getting the like, okay, now, now it's time to really do something. I think it helped uh, and I wanted to do something, but never found that I had the right timing or you know, the t- right co-founders. Hmm. AML is a relatively like niche category. Um, AML is mm-hmm. anti-money laundering. Like, how did you stumble upon this domain? Yeah, so like the first experience I had of it was uh, as a product manager for Fund by Me, which is a sort of crowdfunding uh, solution. And I was a product manager and I had my roadmap of cool features and everything that I wanted. And our compliance person would be like, hey, we also have to think about these, these, and these things. So my first sort of exposure to AML and compliance was a sort of a negative one um, <laughs> because it was like sort of messing with my ability to build whatever I wanted to build. Um, and then my co-founders, they've also worked with AML tools and from sort of they've experienced as developers from banking and sort of finance. And they came across it from the other side of like, oh, hey, we've built these tools before and they're not really expanding a lot like they're not innovating in this field as much as finance and banking and so sort of fintech is and we think we could do something here mm. and so from that we kind of started discussing like okay well let's let's talk to customers let's see if our idea that you know poor or sort of inefficient aml processes and tools are holding back sort of some of these fintech companies and it turned out that yeah a lot of those were like they had to re- basically rebuild tools that other banks had already had in order to sort of at the same time compete with these sort of established companies. So we're like, okay, well, let, let, there's something here for us to do, like offer modern companies better and more modern tools to, to build these things on. Taking a step back, can you, uh, I, I probably should have done this first. Um, could you give a background on what AML is or what is, what is money laundering in general for people who may not be aware? Yeah. I mean, the, the short description is that it's, um, trying to hide the origin of uh, criminally acquired funding to be able to integrate that into society uh, as sort of clean money that you can use for, you know, investments or purchasing sort of, you know, real estate or uh, sort of art or anything. So essentially it's about being able to live off your criminally acquired sort of cash or money. So for an example, it might be a, I don't know, a drug dealer like sells drugs, makes money, but they want to make clean money. So they open up another business and pretend the money came through the other business. Is that is that an example? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's it's there's always a sort of a pre-crime in money laundering because for some reason you want to hide where the money actually came from. Um, but you also want to be able to sort of, well, you as in cr- criminals, <laughs> criminals who want to sort of uh, live on their sort of proceeds, uh, but they can't necessarily sort of buy an apartment uh, with just sort of duffel bags of cash. <laughs> So they have to be able to show that, okay, well, this money came from this business that I have, or, oh, these are all sort of, you know, uh, casino winnings Hmm. (laughs) and those kind of things. So there are a lot of different ways of trying to do that. And there's also a lot of different ways of catching those kind of uh, of activities. So how do you go from hearing about, oh, this is a requirement my business needs to comply with to, hey, I want to be the one to build this? We actually started off by thinking it would be like a really simple thing to get started in. Um, we didn't have this sort of big vision when we first started. We're like, okay, well, one part of sort of AML compliance, so you know, uh, following the law of what you have to do, is that you need to check your customers for whether or not they're sanctioned by EU or the US or anything like that. Um, or you have to see if they have a what's called a politically exposed person status, which means that they're a political person, have some sort of a position which could be abused uh, in terms of money laundering or corruption. And we're like, well, okay, so there's lists of those kind of people, companies generate them and they sell them to banks. And then 
those banks build those systems themselves. Well, maybe we could do just an API mm -hmm. solution for that. And once we started talking to customers, we realized that you know that is something that more modern sort of companies wanted. They wanted to have sort of microservices, API services that they could build into their solutions rather than having either old school web-based solutions or really sort of poor API solutions like SOAP-based or anything like that. So that kind of, it's because it started off as a, oh, it's a really small thing. It seemed like, oh yeah, we could do this and let's just, let's just go ahead. And, and then it's only later that we kind of saw the complexity of like, hey, there's a lot more to do here uh, than just sort of tying a database into an API and offering that to customers. And then that's when we really start to figure out, okay, what do we want to do? And what is the sort of the bigger picture uh, than just providing this microservice? You mentioned talking to multiple potential customers before building, is that right? Yeah. Do you have uh, a part of how many conversations you had and what you learned from those? Yeah, I think we had about half a dozen um, at a very early stage and then about maybe you know, six or 10 more, like as we were sort of figuring out like, okay, this is the type of customer that seems to sort of, uh, our conversations are sort of getting more towards. And very early, it was a very broad type of customer. It was pretty much, or persons. It was anybody working within legal or compliance and really for us to try and understand like, well, why did they have to do this? How are they doing it? What kind of tools are they using? Uh, and then later it became much more about, well, how would they want to do it? Like, and then and, and try to sort of compare that to what kind of solution do we want to build? We knew that we were kind of wanted to go initially towards like for developers, tools for developers. We want to be API based. That also meant that we started looking at okay, what kind of companies does this make more sense to us? Mm -hmm. uh, we talked like very early, we talked to a lot of law firms, but we realized that, okay, well, they're not the ones that are going to develop, develop and build APIs. So we have to start looking at sort of more fintech, more sort of up and coming startups, but also sort of more established financial companies that are becoming more tech savvy. So like, okay, well, how do we make sure that they have the tools that uh, they need? How did you find, did you have personal connections to these people to interview or did you like find them randomly through like, like friend of friend of friends? It was uh, more through sort of not friend of friend of friends, but through networking. Okay. And so early on we were sort of invited to join a sort of an accelerator program uh, held by a law firm, which is how we got the first hmm. sort of conversations with sort of uh, lawyers within compliance. And so they helped us get in touch with, with the people and then sort of we kind of followed that thread, like, okay, we talked to one person, like, and then ended with who else should we talk to? <laughs> and they would sort of make a connection to somebody else. And then we sort of went that way. I feel like that's probably one of the definitely underrated strategies for building a network, just always asking people after like a good interaction, yeah. hey, who else should I get to know in your network? And I think almost always you'll find someone. I mean, that's something that we um, really felt that it helped us uh, really to, how do you say it, like not get stuck in, in the process. I'm like, mm. okay, we'll, we'll talk to this person. Who do we talk to next? Next, And it became like a very natural question for us to ask. How many, uh, how many people did you have on the team at that point? Was it just you and your two co-founders? Yeah, it was just me and my two co-founders. Uh, and we stayed that way until basically end of uh, 2020, so end of last year. And how did you meet your co-founders? So um, my two co-founders are Adam and Thomas. Um, Adam and I actually know each other from when we were eight years old. We've gone to the same primary school, uh, same high school, and we've kind of always talked about like, hmm. oh, yeah, at some point we should do something together. We've had the same sort of nerdy sort of, uh, sort of uh, hobbies, uh, played like text-based RPGs in high school and stuff like that, where we're the only ones doing it. Uh, and we kind of had like a good connection. And it took a while, basically 20 years, to start <laughs> thinking about like, okay, okay, we're, we're kind of getting to that point where we know each other enough about ourselves and what we want to do to start thinking about it. And then Adam and Thomas, they've worked together as sort of consultants hmm. and, and sort of developers for the, you know, for the past 10, 12 years. So that's kind of how we got to in touch with each other. So was the idea originally in your mind based off your experiences and you shared it with those two others to get them to join on board relatively early? Is that how it played out? No, it was actually like, we kind of started from the other end of like me and Adam talking and saying, okay, we want to work together. We want to do something together. Let's start looking at what we can do. Hmm. So we actually spent a lot of time discussing why we wanted to start a company together. 
like what that meant to us, what kind of what kind of life we wanted to have with this company. And then we started, once we kind of agreed on, okay, we have the same vision here about why we want to start a company. Then we started to kind of a little bit like product manager wise, like start looking at, okay, what do we have? What kind of common interests do we have in technology and areas? And start to sort of break those down mm-hmm. into potential business ideas. So we had like, okay, I, I worked at Facebook. So we kind of looked at sort of marketing tools or sort of in that space and sort of, again, interviewed customers and then figured out that, okay, well, you know, this area isn't the one where we think that we can sort of make a real difference and really sort of push the innovation. Okay, let's look at the next thing. And then that's kind of like, we started looking at our experiences of Adam and sort of Thomas coming from having worked on AML tools at competitors and feeling that there's a mm. lot more to do there. And then me coming from like, okay, well, I've experienced that from as a product manager within this field, there is something there. And then we started to sort of evolve and sort of dig into that. And we are like, okay, yeah, here is something where we think we can create something on the short term, but we also think that we see where the industry is going, which means that we can not just be reactive and just build what people tell us to build, but also look at, okay, how can we make sure that we meet customers' need even before they know that they have them? So automation of AMLs, what you ended up doing, but how many ideas did you have prior to that that you considered, but then talked to people and realized it's probably not worth building? Um, I think there was a couple. We kind of went pretty deep on a few once we kind of knew the different areas we wanted to work in. I think in terms of analytics for marketing was one, and we kind of focus a lot on influencer marketing. Mm. Um, and and that's, uh, it's, it's a funny story because we kind of dug into it because we, we saw that, okay, all other types of digital marketing is really going towards data, sort of ROI analysis, um, very sort of data focused. Uh, but influencer marketing wasn't catching up on that. So we kind of think that, okay, well, there is something there. It's going to go that level or go that way. Um, but after talking to all these different parties, like influencers, uh, marketers, uh, agencies, sort of, uh, advertisers, we realized that they didn't all see it the same way. And so some parties wanted more data focus, others wanted less, some wanted more ROI focus, other wanted or had different variations Mm -hmm. and definitions of ROI. And we realized that, okay, we could build something here, but we didn't think that we were the person who could bring all of those sort of parties together Mm -hmm. to decide, okay, what is the way forward? And so we're like, okay, well, it's it's a really cool space and then there's stuff going to happen there, but we're not going to be the ones that can really push that. Like we couldn't see how we would do that. So we're like, all right, well, we'll back away from this one and, and go on to the next one. And I think it's, it's kind of what stuff that we're seeing now. Like it's, there's a lot of focus on ROI in the influencer marketing space, but I think we didn't make, we made the right, right decision because we couldn't have pushed it that way. Hmm. So going back in terms of timeline, from the time you had an idea of like, hey, the industry is pretty lacking in the AML space to billion MVP, how long was that time delta? Um, I think from a technical perspective, it, it was very short. Like we had this proof of concept. We kind of had that in place within sort of six to eight months. Hmm. Um, but then it, it was a struggle for us to really sort of get close. Like, well, how do we actually sort of reach out to customers and, and sort of sell this? How do we actually sort of do that? And particularly for us as three non-traditional salespeople who haven't had experience doing that, um, there was a lot of things that took a lot of time for us. And I think from, so let's say we started, I think in, in June, 2018, um, sort of formally like, okay, we set up the company, actually started working forward. We had sort of our, our, our sort of databases, our collaborators, uh, we had a proof of concept. We knew that, you know, once we have a company in, we can make it work. Uh, then it took actually us until the following year when we joined an accelerator and through that, alumni network actually got our first couple of customers uh, into the actual platform where we actually could sort of see the whole process of like, okay, we have a customer in, they're using the tool and they're paying for it. Mm-hmm. All right, this thing works now. <laughs> and when you first started, did you have a like, good idea on how to price or did you just price arbitrarily? Um, we kind of went with like, looked at what competitors were pricing and we didn't want it to become a sort of race for the bottom. So we kind of placed ourselves around the level and decided that, hey, we think our, we are better than our customer, sorry, competitors. 
So why should we be cheaper? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of start going from that perspective. And then it's been sort of a, a, an iterative process of like learning from sort of our customers and really understanding that going away from oh, what, cust- what competitors are charging to what is the value that we're creating. Mm-hmm. So that was a, like a journey for us as well to figure out and learn like how do we do pricing? And that's, that's the journey that we're still on. So that's, it's not finished yet. So one of the things about API-based, or I guess particularly fraud-based API businesses is the the convincing someone of the value. Because I think a lot of times mm-hmm. if someone has zero money laundering on their platform or zero known money laundering yep. on their platform, it's really hard of a sell. Like how, how do you go about like pitching it? Yeah, I mean, our initial sort of product has been very much focused on compliance. So like, okay, just you know, make sure how you have to do this because you are regulated by a financial authority. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have for you. You might lose your license otherwise. And the way that companies are doing it are is generally very manual, um, sort of ineffective, sort of time consuming. So, and, and all of these things can be made sort of automatic, consistent, scalable. Um, and we kind of pitch it that way. So instead of looking at compliance as a cost center, like look at it as the, something that you can change to be able to scale your business faster hmm. because if you're doing it manually well maybe you can only onboard you know five to ten customers per week or per day mm-hmm. but if you're automating it then you can go to hundreds thousands and, and that doesn't become a, a blocker for you anymore hmm. so we were pretty early on looking at it like you know hey let's change how people look at compliance from a cost center to an enabler for their growth and i think we focus a lot on like roi in terms of you know people spending time like this this work is being done and either you know your compliance person or sort of even you know operations persons are spending a lot of their time checking if a customer is sanctioned for example and following up with false positives or they could be doing something else that probably creates a lot more value within your company than checking against lists so diving into i guess some slightly more technical details let's say someone like hits your api and they have a like list of names and one of them is a, um, mm-hmm. like politically, polit- what was it? Politically exposed uh, person or a person of, yeah, exactly. um, person of interest in, in your domain. Uh, what exactly does your system do to like surface it to your clients? Yeah. So we have a few different ways of our customers getting that information back, um, either straight through the API call or on the customers that we have on monitoring, they get it through a webhook or a mm-hmm. feed. And basically from there, the customer then can take a look at it information saying, okay, well, our customer is sort of David. And then we got a match saying that this David is a politically exposed person or sanctioned. But we also then provide a lot of sort of contextual data. Like, okay, well, you know, David is a politically exposed person because he has this role within mm. a political party or, or sort of a governmental role. And then they can sort of much easier and quicker within without leaving their tool, see that, okay, well, actually this is not our David crap. It's gotcha. somebody else. Okay, false positive, move on. Or, okay, actually, this is a match. And then, you know, adjust your risk profile within their service and then sort of move on again uh, so that they don't have to either ask you for your status or where you might not even know, uh, which is very common that people don't know that they're politically exposed or they count as politically exposed mm-hmm. because, because their family member or relative is, is one. So how if a person themselves don't know if they're politically exposed, who's tracking mm-hmm. all this? Uh, so there are a lot of sort of database sort of, uh, sort of or research companies that basically look at the legal definitions say like okay well in sweden uh, where we're based for example uh, these are the categories of people uh, who are counted as politically exposed uh, for example certain level of judges i see so they'll look at like okay well in sweden who who are the judges of this level and then they look at like okay well their spouses and their children and their parents also counts okay well okay. of of this judge who, who's their spouse, who's their children, and who are their parents. And then sort of start looking at, okay, well, they started being a judge at this stage, maybe they stopped being or retired at this stage, and sort of do all that information and, and sort of data collecting. Um, so they focus a lot on doing that and updating, um, and then that's kind of their focus. What about the scenarios of money laundering that aren't connected to politically exposed people? Like what if I'm just an average person that has a insignificant title as defined by whatever these mm. research companies Say like, let's say I just own a, like a laundromat and I was like selling drugs at the same time. Like, is that something that's trying, are you trying to 
build that as a solution into your platform or is that something else entirely? That's something that's entirely, but it is something that's on the roadmap for us in terms of sort of covering the whole AML process. So the first part that we look at is that, you know, these companies need to become a lot more efficient, sort of digitalized uh, and sort of automated in their processes so that if they're, for example, if they're handling a lot of cash uh, into their system, they can be done effectively with sort of the compliance part and then start looking at their own business saying, okay, financial criminals are relatively smart people. If they were to sort of try and abuse my new FinTech solution, how would they do that? Mm -hmm. And how do I then set up the rules and sort of routines to be able to catch or sort of prevent that? Because what we noticed is that a lot of disproportionate amount of time was spent on this, like our checking our customers for PEP or politically exposed persons, checking them against sanctions list. And that took up too much time mm, and I didn't have time to really look into like, all right, how do we actually become proactive? I see. So between you and your two co-founders, how do you decide like what to build in the early days and how do you decide the split of responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, because we're only three people, um, we kind of just went with like, okay, well, uh, CM has experience with account management and sort of marketing and a little bit more on product side. Uh, he gets to be the CEO because that means he gets to do everything. Uh, <laughs> and then Adam and Thomas, uh, because the developers, they're like, okay, well, they'll be co-CTOs. They kind of, they're both back end focus. And at that early stage, that's kind of, it doesn't really matter who does what, again, from that perspective. Uh, and then what we, in terms of how we decided on what to build, we kind of became very pragmatic. I think thought that, okay, we kind of really need to show that this use case that we're thinking about actually works mm. uh, and that that itself has value uh, before we start adding a lot of features. So we kind of decided very early to keep the product very niche and very small. Like, yes, you send in customer data, we send you information back. Mm. And, and, and there, there is value in that because that's what kind of the, the manual process looks like. And if we can automate it and scale it, there should be plenty of value in just doing that. So very early stage, we kind of decided that that's what we're going to focus on. And we even sort of took a decision that once we knew that that was working, that we, instead of adding new features, uh, we were like, okay, well, that works. Let's now learn how to sell this because we need to be, be much better at understanding our customers mm-hmm. and understanding who this has value for rather than, um, you know, building something as soon as another customer says, oh, if you only had this thing, then we would buy it. We'd be like, okay, well, then at the moment, you're not our customer to find the ones that find the value in just the sort of tiny thing that we've created. Earlier, you mentioned how you're relatively new to sales and you've been learning a lot through the journey. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how do you make that initial like jump in terms of like friction of like, I've never sold something to like, I am now responsible for selling all of my company's product. Like that's a major responsibility yeah. gap. Like how, how do yeah. you go about like breaking that down? I mean, it was a lot of sort of, try and do online learning like okay how do you sell um and going a lot from like what we think is selling so it was like okay we we set up a sort of crm system uh, and they have this little pipeline of activities and oh a customer asked about pricing so i guess they were in sort of proposal mode which they weren't (laughs) because that's generally not how it works but that was like like a learning for us that okay we're doing something we have activities and and that was the sort of an early realization for us once we kind of had three customers that we kind of stumbled upon because um, they were a alumni of the accelerator that we were in and we have one sort of completely cold customer we realized that okay so this flow works sort of a customer will find value they can implement our service and they will pay for it we just have to figure this out hmm. before we do anything else so we actually went back to one of our sort of accelerator uh, coaches uh, who works on like helping sort of startups really set up the sales strategies and started working with them uh, in the beginning of 2020, uh, pretty much on January 2nd, like, okay, we need help. Um, and that process really helped us to A, set a sales strategy that worked for us at an early stage, really segment our customers, uh, you know, do role playing and practicing on cold calls. Mm. And that's something that we all three of us did. So even sort of Adam and Thomas were sort of really back end developers who were like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll, like 
they knew that you know if we wanted this to work, they also had to sort of pick up the phone and make calls. And we're kind of early days, like sitting in a small room, like kind of like this, like, all right, Adam's going to do a call. All right, let's, let's, <laughs> up, let's do this. Um, and then sort of learning from that. And, and obviously then we kind of realized, okay, well, there's certain strengths and that people can focus on other things. And, but it, it was a really good exercise to do together to really understand that, okay, this is something that we have to solve one way or another. It can't be solved by, oh, we'll just hire somebody to do the sales for us. And also, even if we do hire somebody, we have to be able to tell them how selling works for our product, mm -hmm. the way that we talk about it. And there's also a, a huge, what we learned is a huge benefit of being founders who are selling because we know the product so well uh, that we can communicate that in a, in a very different way than somebody who comes in. Uh, because it's going to take them as long as it took for us to sort of get into the product. And we had been doing it for three years. So it's kind of, you know, um, it's unfair to expect that a salesperson can come in and within two months is supposed to be as knowledgeable as you. Uh, to be able to communicate your product to somebody else. Was that, uh, how many cold calls did you do and how, how many did you have to do before the nerves start to die down? Um, I, I kind of still feel that I, I get the nerves okay. when I'm doing cold calls. Um, I think initially, like before we started working with this advisor and setting up um, sort of, uh, the sales strategy, we were still like, we we're doing emails only. Um, and even afterwards, we had our sort of sales process and email was the first sort of hmm. step. And then we kind of waited with having to do that first phone call. Um, and it was still, I think, very early days, it was very much like, okay, I should make this call, I should make this call, and just picking up the phone, and then trying to get over that, you know, three to five seconds of really sort of high anxiety to just like dial that number, because once you hit that sort of green dial, it's like, okay, well, now it's just weird if I hang up. <laughs> now, now, now I sort of have to sort of answer <laughs> because they'll see that I called. <laughs> um, so that's something. And, and it's something that I feel, still feel that it's like there's, there's this anxiety. It's much less than before, but it's still like if I've set aside a certain time to do certain sort of follow-up calls or sort of cold calls, I still have that like, okay, all right, now let's do that call. And as soon as I've done the first one, the second one is easier and the third one is easier. And then you get into a little bit of flow. Do you have a track of how many you've done and what your conversion rate is? Um, is it loosely speaking? No, okay. but, but not in general. But, but we, we kind of noticed pretty quickly, um, particularly last, sort of last year, uh, uh, when we sort of had, we hired our first salesperson and kind of saw that, yeah, like instead of doing that first email, that phone call just works so much faster because you get an answer uh, either way so much faster. Like you don't have these sort of chains of emails saying, Hey, have you seen my last email? You just, you just even have an answer and you have an opportunity sort of to, so if it doesn't work, ask the customer immediately, like, oh, okay, sort of, is it timing? Is it just that not, it's not interesting? And you kind of have a sort of mental sort of ease, like, all right, that's why good done versus like these email threads where we were sort of having, you know, talking to or trying to talk to a customer for, for months where it was just like, it was not going anywhere, but we also didn't have a sort of closure of like, no, this is not interesting, let's move on. And so I think that process really helped us to be good at not just sort of qualifying customers, but also disqualifying and also knowing like, okay, we've, we've actually tried our best and now it's time to sort of close this and move on to the next one. Were you able to get like product feedback over the phone during those cold call sessions? Um, we learned a lot from those cold call sessions and we kind of still do. And it's, it's a lot about how do we convey value and who do we talk to? Mm. Uh, initially and, and kind of still our primary sort of point of contact is a CTO or a sort of a, a technical person because it, it's also qualifying the customer for us because we're an API only tool. If they don't have the technical resources, um, there's no point in us talking to somebody on compliance. Um, so we know that, okay, there's mm -hmm. thousands of companies that have this requirement, but they might not have the volumes or sort of the te technical capability to implement something uh, where they would benefit from it. So ha having a sort of a, a qualifier as in talking to a developer or a sort of a CTO that answers a lot of our questions sort of immediately. Uh, but from there, we kind of generally get a lot of ideas about, okay, well, 
what are they thinking about? Is it a, a sort of issue for them? If it's not, like, why not? Like, can they see something being better? So we kind of had a lot of feedback on what well, customers see this as a problem because some people will see it as like a huge problem. Like this is way, like we, we have to deal with this somehow. And other people are like, yeah, like with our volumes, with our processes, or we maybe even we've automated everything. So yeah, it's fine. Like we actually don't have to do anything. And in those cases, like, well, great. Uh, when you guys are looking to renew your current supplier, we're happy to sort of, you know, put in a bid and then hmm. sort of thank you, thank them for the time and then sort of move on from there. But I think that was also a learning that every conversation is also a learning opportunity from that perspective. Um, beyond the coaching component of the accelerated program that you went to, I guess one, how'd you discover it? And two, like what'd you get out of the experience? Yeah, I think um, it's, 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 it's one of the sort of Sweden's sort of larger and more sort of um, successful accelerated programs. So I've been in contact with them or in, in sort of exposed to them through the startup network. Um, but for some reason, like when I started my company, I just didn't think about joining a startup accelerator. Um, and I think thinking back, it was probably because I wasn't valuing and we weren't valuing like what an accelerator can do. Hmm. We're like, oh, okay, like the coaching. Yeah, we don't really need that. Um, what happened was that like I, I knew about this accelerator for years. Uh, we sat with them with sort of their uh, alumni companies uh, while I was at one of my uh, previous startups. Um, and then at like an after work at a co-working space, like one friend said, hey, you should talk to this person at Sting, which is the sort of accelerator program. And then she came over, talked a little bit. And I was like, yeah, maybe we should take a look at it. And she's like, yeah, we're going to, so we're, we're closing applications on Sunday. And this was on Friday. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I was like, went back, talked to sort of my co-founders. And at that point, and it seems silly now, but at that point we're like, okay, so they, they take an option uh, within your sort of company and then, but they give you these things and we valued them very differently then compared to how we value them now. I see. So at, at the very top, we're like, okay, so they, they give you a hundred thousand sort of Google credits. Like that's just that alone is worth everything. That's, that's good. Let's do that. And like, oh, and then you get office space. Okay. That's good. So those two things is definitely worth that like tiny percentage. Mm -hmm. That's how we kind of went into it. And then within two weeks, we're like, oh, those are like the me least meaningful things that we can do with this. <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't even know what we would do with like 100,000 sort of Google credits because we're not scaling right, at that right. level. Um, so we kind of really understood that, okay, it is the coaching of really understanding hmm. and getting help. And so because of their experience of helping companies go from having a proof of concept to customer and then moving on, that gave us so much. And I think... It, I'm really glad that we took that Saturday to talk about it and then <laughs> Saturday night to write in the application and send it in before Sunday because uh, honestly like I don't think I know where we would be today if we didn't go there we might have like wasted a lot more time um, and uh, yeah I think that was like it's, it's still one of our sort of I think sort of make it or break it moments like if we hadn't gone there um, yeah who knows when we would have found our first customer uh, and if we ever would have, it might've just been like, yeah, we'd give it a sort of a year. It didn't work out. Right, let's go back and do something else. Can you dive into a specific example of what you learned from the coaching or from the courses or, um, something con like concrete? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, one of the things was really understanding sort of, uh, sales. Uh, the other was really understanding, you know, we, we thought that we were pretty good at segmenting our customers. We're like, oh, it's fintech companies but really going deeper into that. And that's a journey that we've been continuing to do pretty much since we started, but really understanding like, who are we building for? Um, and sort of that kind of, even as like a, having worked as a product manager before, like somehow you forget everything that you did before when you start a company and you kind of start from scratch and you learn, like you forget everything you've been telling other people to, <laughs> to do previously. So that was something very sort of important for us. And also like really figuring out like what is like what is the long-term stuff that we want to achieve like what it, like what we're doing this right now but how do we see the path forward so that's really something that helped us um i think particularly sort of the confidence to start sort of talking to customers in a different way and reach out sort of in a, in a more proactive way 
uh, that was something that sort of really pushed us. And taking in other people's sort of input and sort of experience. I think that was from the coaching. And I think and a super practical thing was really like putting in the sort of the work. We're like, okay, we're going to have coaching sessions every other week or every week. Um, so that coach, we told them we're going to do X amount of sort of outreaches. We have to do that now. <laughs> Versus before it was just within us, like amongst ourselves. Hmm. So like having that discipline and that's something that we could have kept afterwards as well. Like, all right, we have to be way more accountable to each other about what we're doing um, and sort of moving that forward. Do you feel like now that you've gone through the accelerated program, you feel more equipped to be an entrepreneur for all future businesses or is it specific to a specific domain? No, I think that was like in general, something like all of these experiences that we've had with sort of coaches and accelerator is that it, it's, it's, it's not super specific or it wasn't mm. at least this accelerator wasn't specific to an industry. Um, though they took in like our batch had a lot of FinTech and that kind of companies, which meant that we kind of built a network and we understood their sort of uh, points. But it's something that I feel like is going to help me even in the future. I want to start more companies. Like mm. there's lots of sort of, you know, uh, teething problems that I won't face in the same way, or at least know that, okay, if this happens, I've dealt with this before. I've heard about this before. I can, I know who to ask um, to sort of uh, figure out how to solve it. I noticed on your LinkedIn, you also mentioned, you also reference other times in your career where you were a founder, uh, specifically for the CRA group or, and from some, a new mm -hmm. site that you started. How do you feel like those experience molded you to become an entrepreneur or have more experience and more preparation for your current role now? Or, yeah, or do so, they? yeah, I, I think they did. Or uh, the fact, I think they helped me figure out like what I kind of like doing. Um, and I think from CRA group, which was like, basically it was uh, us three students. We were kind of graduating and we kind of wanted to put our ideas or education to sort of practice. And so okay, well, you know, let's let's start something. So we, we kind of even then we started as a project. Like, okay, we're gonna do a project, it's gonna sort of have fun and learn something while we look for work after graduation. So it was really interesting. Like we, we basically created a sort of book swap swapping site where hmm. you upload books that you wanna sort of give away for free, and then you can sort of use those points to get books for free. Hmm. And it was a great experience because again, we kind of had to sort of learn a lot of stuff and uh, practice all the sort of the coding and stuff that we did in school. Um, and then realized that, Hey, we actually got 200 active users. We don't know who these people are. And like, tw tw like 20 of them are sending books across Sweden, you know, to strangers huh. um, and then receiving books and, and sort of doing that. And we're like, Oh, that's really fun. And like, we, we didn't go anywhere else with it. Like we kind of, sort of tried with it, play with it a little bit. And then we kind of all got jobs and kind of like, forgot about it. Um, and then it's kind of funny, like recently in, in Sweden, like uh, a different book sort of swapping site, it's got a huge investment and that's sort of growing. Like, oh, <laughs> we were like we were basically 14 years too early. <laughs> like, so, and, and, and they executed on, 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 a, on a different level. So that was like a fun experience. And, but I kind of realized that I kind of liked that product idea or product hmm. work um, and, or like that organization work. Um, and it was the same thing with the news site. So I, I ran a gaming news site and I realized that after a while, that, okay, more than playing the games, I liked sort of writing about them hmm. and sort of helping sort of my friends get um, sort of uh, tickets to E3 so that they could go and try games, write about those games. And then I could put it up on that site and sort of organize that work. So I kind of realized that I kind of liked that part a lot more than the actual games, hmm. uh, even though I like, I'm not, well, I was an avid gamer back then. <laughs> Before I started entrepreneurship, I used to play a lot more video games myself. Entrepreneurship yeah. is definitely one of those heavy, heavy time, time commitments. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think now, nowadays I, I might fall into gaming like every now and then, and I get intensely into it. And, but that only lasts a couple of weeks and then it disappears completely for like a year and a half. <laughs> I think the last time was like Fallout 4 or something. Like finished it and then nothing. Like there's no inkling of wanting to play something else. <laughs> so at the end of the year, a lot of gaming services will give you like, hey, this is what you played the past year. This is how many hours you put in. And a lot of my friends are like the couple hundred level. And like one year I had like less than 20 hours logged for the whole year. I'm like, dang, <laughs> I was really yeah. busy that year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite? I think my 
easily go to go back to game is C4 okay. uh, or C5, um, mainly because like I can go into it, I can sort of delve into it. It doesn't require me to coordinate with anybody else about playing together or anything mm. like that, and I can kind of disappear into it for a while. Um, otherwise, like I kind of like sort of big single player RPGs because uh, again you can kind of disappear into them. Uh, and they don't really require again coordination with others, mm. and it doesn't. It, it's like if you've done something, you can play for five minutes and sort of go away. But uh, sort of the huge worlds, sort of lots of stuff to do, explore. That kind of relaxes me in a, in a different way. So nowadays, how do you find or do you find work-life balance? Yeah, I mean that was one of the sort of important things that Adam and I discussed, like how we want work-life balance to be, mm. and kind of we know that like you know running a company is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of uh, sort of effort. But we also don't want to fall into I think what I consider to be sort of these sort of stereotypical ideas about sort of startup life. Like, oh, you have to work 80 hours a week or it doesn't work. Um, and you can't have vacation. You can't kind of do this. And we kind of want to challenge that because like, like I had a well-paid job at startups. Like I didn't, I didn't quit my job so I could work more like, <laughs> long-term, like long-term right, I right, right. have more, more control and more freedom to choose what I do. And which is what I do right now that I get to choose a lot of what I do and how I work. So I think for me, having that work-life balance is really important. And that also requires me to be really sort of thoughtful about, okay, what is the most important thing that I can be doing and should be doing? Um, and I think I learned that, like, I think the first year I was, because I came from like, okay, working sort of a full-time job to starting something, but we were so early that there wasn't actually stuff for me to do hmm. sort of eight hours a day. But, and I was keeping busy, but like, oh, I'll have to read about all of this sort of, sort of, um, you know, unit economics and all that kind of stuff. And then I, after doing that for a few months, I was like, but why? Be like, <laughs> we don't have any users. <laughs> I, don't have any, I don't have any sort of metrics. Like, I don't know when this will be useful. Um, let's focus on like what I should be doing and like it's going to get a lot busier later so I might as well take the sort of the free time that I can now and start sort of relaxing like, okay mm. what is the most important thing okay well it's finding customers to talk to like I don't need to read about how to calculate sort of you know lifetime value when I have no idea of any of that like I'll, I'll learn that when I have sort of a customer <laughs> and, and I can sort of move that forward so that was also something that realized that you're so used to sort of just staying busy that it, it, it sometimes you have to think about like, well, what do you actually have to do? And then how do you prioritize? I think that also becomes really important because I think especially within startups, but in, in work in general, you can always be doing something. You can always start a new task. And at some point you have to decide that, okay, what is the most important thing for me to do? What's going to give me the most value? And what's better that I just stop here at sort of 5 p.m. and then I'll, I'll do this thing tomorrow? Uh, because it's, otherwise it just becomes doing, you know, busy work or, or just trying to stay busy. What are some of the other principles that you and Adam have in common in terms of the style of business you want to build? Um, we, we discussed a lot about like building from the bottom up. Uh, we like, we, we, we wanted to find a, a business model that sort of can stand on its own. And, and, and that was one of the reasons why we kind of had different criteria for like when we were deciding on different types of businesses we're like okay well we want it to be business to business like that's what i have experience with i personally have a much easier way of relating to sort of business needs and an roi and sort of finding the underlying value for a business to a business versus something that's much more consumer friendly because there's so many more variables there where roi is not might not be a, a right. clear simple one so like, well, well, let's definitely look at something business to business. And let's definitely look at something where we can get started and do something on our own for a while um, before we need to raise funding, if we ever need to raise funding. So we kind of started, and then we kind of waited three years before we started looking to raise funding because we, we thought that, well, we felt that, okay, we want to do it when we want to do it. We don't want to become like a, again, like a stereotypical thing or like, oh, we have an idea for a startup. Well, I guess the first step is to look for funding. Like, well, let's take a step back. Like, there's going to be opportunities to do that if we want to, and certain business will require that. Like, if you want to open a bank, you might want to do some sort of raise some funding to do that. But from our perspective, we're like, okay, what we are doing, we think actually we can get started uh, without doing that. 
and we might never need it or we might need it once we know what we need the money for and, and that's kind of how we end mm -hmm. up doing that as well do you can talk about company culture and like how you want to lead the company once you hired more people yeah we talked a lot about like how we want again how we want it to work and and a lot of the stuff we focus on was you know transparency openness open communication um something i've learned uh from sort of my experiences with sort of well friends that i really trusted that it's it's so much easier to sort of it's much better to have like this 20 second of awkwardness to get a point across and say something straight up uh, than having sort of this anxiety build or sort of a bad sort of potential situation build. Um, so that's something that we took it with us. It's like, hey, mm. yeah, we're going to be friendly with each other. We're going to be respectful, but we also have to be open and realize that we all want the same thing. So it's, it's better that we talk openly with each other uh, knowing that we don't mean something disrespectful about each other or sort of um, offensive to each other, but we want the same thing and then we should go talk to, talk to each other very clearly and openly. So that, that was a important thing. And that's something that we try to do as we're sort of hiring sort of and growing, that okay, how do we convey that? And, and that's generally about how they see us communicate with each other. Like we have to be able to disagree, but we have to be able to do it in a sort of friendly, sort of respectful way. Uh, but we also have to be able to sort of question each other. And that's also how we have sort of chosen our first um, supervisors uh, is that they weren't, they're, they're people that believed in us, but they weren't people who were just like, yep, everything's good. Just go ahead, do whatever you do. <laughs> like, they, they were questioning us. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it felt awkward and sort of hard, um, we appreciated that they could tell us that. Mm -hmm. And we, and, and, and like once we talked to them, they appreciated that we accepted it and didn't just you know, block them out and be like, oh, they, they, don't, they don't understand us or something like that. It's like, no, we have to be able to hear this. And we are hearing it because they believe in us and, and they also became investors, which means that like, you know, even when we have sort of clashing discussions, um, we know why we're having them. And, and it's for the better of, of what we want to achieve. How'd you find them? Uh, it was through the network of Sting, like the accelerator. Um, uh, one was a coach there, and so we uh, were an expert coach that they bring in on certain sort of um, topics, particularly sort of sales strategy and sort of building sales teams. Another one was a sort of a, a contact of one of our sort of regular coaches uh, at Sting. Okay, I have uh, one, or I guess one question I want to ask before I close up, and that question is. Mm -hmm. Uh, what advice would you like to give founders or soon to be founders that are watching this episode? Um, I think, I think I have advice from on two fronts. Uh, one is from product and one is from, from sales. Um, from the product perspective, I think it's, 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 it's good to have an embarrassingly small product to begin with and having that for a long time, because once you start spreading out, like and adding things, um, that's just going to grow as you grow. So it's going to sort of grow exponentially. So the longer you really stay niche, I think it's going to give you sort of a, a clarity of purpose and sort of knowing, and it's going to help you find the customers that benefit from this the most. And uh, before you start looking at like, okay, well, if we add this, we can open up to other markets or sort of companies that that's, that's always good in the future. But I think early on, I think that's probably early on might mean like the first five years. Uh, like stay very niche and then sort of related to that is sales is that you know don't try don't, don't think that somebody else is going to do sales for you or going to do it better they might do it better because they might you know be more experienced doing sales so they might they might not have the anxiety of, of calling people um, but that's the tactical stuff the strategic stuff you like it's going to be better if you learn that uh, to some level so that you can convey it to them and then they can take it and do it better. But you have to be able to have an initial playbook that you can give to a new salesperson and coach them into how you sell because what you're selling and how you're selling is as important. Um, and you know, you have to decide on like, what kind of culture do we have when we're selling? Is it about like, oh, just picking up the phone, calling if as soon as they sort of show non-interest, non just hanging up or do you sort of really figure out who's going to sort of 
be your ideal customer profile and how are you going to sort of talk to them? And, and if I can follow up with just one more there, sure. thing is that um, particularly like don't go for trying to scale sales early on. Like I think that's an advice that, that oh, we just get emails, we just do sort of email marketing or LinkedIn marketing or something like that and it's just going to work. I think try and do account-based marketing, like really understand like, oh, here's the type of customer that we really sort of want to have and start doing sales calls, emails, that kind of stuff. And then start looking at how you can potentially scale that in the future. And based on, even if it might, might not be sort of profitable in, in the beginning, like even if you're doing sort of really low volume tickets or something like that, you're going to learn so much. Mm. I think that's helped us a lot. Okay. Well, I just want to close up on one last thing. And what's the best way for our viewers to get in touch with you if they want to follow along with your journey? Um, I think easiest is LinkedIn. Um, it's CM Chaudhary on, on LinkedIn. Um, also on Instagram, CM was here. <laughs> so that's, that's me. Um, otherwise, yeah, they can always email me at cm at clients.io. Um, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff and sort of learning from others and sort of sharing my learnings as well. Uh, again, one of the sort of the really cool stuff about the accelerator was that because you had companies that were kind of near each other in sort of their stage, you were always either a few months behind or a few months hmm. after somebody or sort of uh, in front of somebody, which meant that you could either help somebody with something that you'd just done, or you could get help from somebody who had just done something like, oh, they just hired their first person like three weeks ago. We can get like accurate, very fresh information about how they did that versus like, oh yeah, five years ago when we hired our first person, we, I think we did it this way. Like it doesn't become as fresh. It doesn't become as sort of, hmm. um, interesting or sort of uh, uh, relevant uh, when you're at a later stage. Sounds good. And we'll have all the links that you just referenced in the summary of the landing page. Oh, cool. Well, thanks again for your time, Cian. It's been yeah, thanks great. Thanks for taking the time and talking to me.